Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow patriots, to the Conservative Review podcast on the one and only Blaze TV network. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, here on Tuesday, January 21st. And Congress is back in session after a little bit of time off for Martin Luther King Day. And you know what's funny? I was thinking over the weekend, it was actually great that Congress was out. And for once, we weren't talking about impeachment. On Friday, it was great news with ICE finally aggressively revealing statistics on illegal alien crime going after New York City. We're building momentum against sanctuary cities. Yesterday, you had the big rally of patriots for gun rights, real civil rights for U.S. citizens in Virginia, in Richmond, Virginia. And, you know, I realized our people are starting to come alive between that, New York's jailbreak law. We're starting to get a little bit, a modicum of focus among our people on issues of of substance. Then what happens? Well, Tuesday, Congress comes back in. And for the next three weeks, it's going to be all about impeachment all the time while the left continues to win on the civilization issues. Every day, Trump is president, and and we have passed the three-year marker. Time is passing by very quickly, but every day he is president is another day where there's an opportunity for him to use the bully pulpit, executive actions, leverage a veto threat on budget bills to achieve for us what needs to happen on public safety, on security, on sovereignty, real civil rights, deregulation, some stuff he's doing well. And we're going to talk about that today with our special guest, Todd Benzman, on what finally worked at the border. But on the interior, there's a lot of problems with interior enforcement, a lot of problems with our gun rights being taken away in in every state where Democrats control. There's a lot of problem with the courts. The courts continuing continuing to concoct rights for foreign nationals that are destroying this country. But 10 years after the Heller decision on guns, we still, at least in the states where where many of us live, like I live in Maryland, do not have the right to carry, are so restricted in what we can buy, and crime is rampant. So a lot is going on. And to me, I just don't understand what rationale there is for dragging out an impeachment trial that nobody is following, nobody understands. You can't score points on it. Over the weekend, Trump tweeted what I was saying, that they should just summarily dismiss it. And I think they should move on to issues that will actually win elections. And that's what we're here for this week. So those of you who are looking for any news not related to impeachment that actually affects your lives, this is your place to come to. Send the note out to all your friends. Our Conservative Review YouTube page, subscribe to it. Um, like our videos as always. If you prefer audio, you can listen on iTunes or Stitcher, anywhere where you get podcasts. And you could always see my columns at our landing page at conservativereview.com, along with the congressional scorecard, how you could see that there are very few Republicans that actually have Republican values. So that's what's going on with that. I have a great column out today that's very important, quantifying the degree of illegal alien murder 
in the New York City area. It's unbelievable. 200 ICE detainers for murder in just one year. You know we've only had 348 murders in New York City and the surrounding counties where ICE is responsible for uh, last year. Now, I'm not saying they commit 200 out of, you know, 350 or so, because some of them are from prior years. Some of them are legal immigrants that are serving a time in, in prison and then being deported after conviction. But still, it's clearly a lot more than 6-7% of the population, which is what they comprise in the New York City area. So that is a huge, huge deal. And we need the president tweeting about that. We need the president talking about that. So many, so many opportunities. Um, you've heard from me a lot just solo the last number of days. We haven't had a guest for a while, so we're going to try to have more guests. I am going to have some candidates for office on in the coming weeks. Um, all sorts of important things to move the ball forward while all my colleagues are focused 100% on what doesn't matter and what they can't influence rather than what does matter, does affect us, what they can influence, and what will ultimately win an election. So that is what is going on here. But anyway, back to the border. So as I said, Todd Benzman doesn't really need much of an introduction to this audience. Todd is a senior fellow for National Security Studies at the Center for Immigration Studies, terrific outlet that um, we promote a lot. We have a lot of their uh, personnel on this show as guests. Um, but really more than a think tank guy, what Todd is at heart is a reporter. Todd um, was in Texas Department of Public Safety's Intel Division. So he has a penchant for going after detail, but he also was a journalist for many years before, and he's really continuing that journalism today. He took a trip down to Mexico, to Guatemala, to several international borders to see what is going on and actually do what surprisingly almost no reporters, right or left, are willing to really do talk to some of the um, illegal immigrants themselves trying to come here, get a sense of what is driving them. Because what I noticed is very interesting. If you look at back at the last three years, perception is everything. As I started off the show saying, every day Trump is president really gives us another opportunity to drive the ball forward. He's willing to do what's right. So when he got in there, there was a perception, oh my gosh, this is done with. We're not going to come. It's that simple. If you tell them you're not going to be let in, they won't come. Numbers plummeted. Historic lows, really. Then the courts got involved. Various court decisions created a right to come here with kids, and it skyrocketed. They came with kids. I was yelping. Todd's colleague, uh, Jessica Vaughn, said similar things of what the administration needed to do to shut this down took way too long, but they did it. And they made unilateral, unilateral agreements with other countries to bring them back. Guess what? The numbers plummeted. We've talked a lot recently about interior enforcement. I still think at this juncture, with the numbers down, interior enforcement is the more serious issue at this point. But it's only the more serious issue because the numbers are down. Are the numbers going to stay that way? What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? What are the next problems lurking behind us? For a full report on this, the one and only Todd Benzman joins us. Hey, Todd, how are you doing? Great. Good to be back to the States and good to be on your show. 
it's like where's waldo you know where's todd on a <laughs> given day you you seem to have uh really enjoy yourself there uh, it is kind of a beautiful country um could you tell us just some of the top lines of what you saw there the last time we had you on it was chaos people were just coming it was a cesspool they all knew that you just come with a kid and you're let in clearly that's not happening anymore what's the perception among the migrants that you spoke to well the highlight of um the trip i think was the ability to just document the fact that the mexican government's deterrence plan insisted on by president trump is fully established now and what that deterrence plan amounts to is a kind of a, a front line a, of deterrence. Uh, I want to say maybe uh, something what well, the migrants themselves call call what's happening to them being placed in a concentration camp, which is hyperbole. But what they really mean is that they're not being allowed to advance beyond three or four southern districts in Mexico. Uh, the, the Mexican government gives them a Hobbesian choice, which is you can either be deported and go home or you can apply for a, a Mexican asylum to get your uh, residency here. And while you're waiting to make your decision or to get the asylum, you cannot advance beyond these districts. And if you do, we will deport you. Uh, how do they enforce this? They're enforcing this whole program by the Mexican military's roadblocks, interior interlocking, uh, reinforcing roadblocks throughout the uh, state of Chiapas and Tabasco and Veracruz. And what that means is that if you decide to ignore the Mexican prescription, and get a smuggler or try to go on your own, take a bus, a cab, or hide in a truck or whatever, there's a very high chance that you will be apprehended and returned back to what they refer to as the concentration camp. It's very effective. Thousands of, of uh, migrants from all over the world are uh, pooling up in this area. It's not a pleasant wait. Uh, the, the, there aren't jobs. The, the money that they have budgeted to get all the way to the United States initially runs out quickly. And the disincentive is very powerful, the incentive to return home. It's not really a concentration camp, of course, or a prison because the whole back door is wide open for them to leave, yep. which is which is the idea. So people uh, forget about that. And it was also true of us. Um, unless they're criminals, they could always voluntarily depart. But I will note, Todd, isn't it true that they're not ex exactly like our facilities? And for all the talk, it's funny, I didn't think of this until you mentioned it, for all the talk of how, oh, our border agents were running concentration camps, the Democrats are talking about that, but clearly that didn't dissuade the migrants from coming because they kept coming. It was once we bottled them up in Mexico, then the numbers went down. So I think that does demonstrate that that there is a difference in terms of quality of our care. Um, what I well, want to. Yeah, sure. Just uh, a quick note on that is that 
our concentration camp, sorry for the air quotes, uh, the, the forward door, the front door is open into the United States. So, uh, you know, you end up in one of our concentration camps and then you get the American dream in a couple of weeks or a couple of days. So in Mexico, yep. you only have the back door open. You can go home uh, or you can stay in Mexico for months on end. Uh, going through their bureaucratically, uh, their bureaucratically slow asylum process. Go ahead. So, so Todd, I'm I'm a little bit surprised. I will say myself, I am a little bit surprised. I said last year I didn't think the Mexican government had the ability to deal with this. And I remember watching these caravans. They would just, you know, they'd start in Honduras, pound through the Guatemalan border. And then they'd come to the Mexican border. Within a few hours, they were marching through the Chiapas on the way north to our border. And now we're seeing them being stopped. So as we hear, a lot of people have seen in the news that there are new caravans forming. So are you confident that the Mexicans could hold the line at at their southern border? Well, the Mexicans are doing it. They're creating a a terrible uh, disincentive. Nobody wants the Mexican dream. Nobody came for the Mexican dream. Uh, and, uh, and I, I would ask them, did, you know, they're saying, oh, well, we'll stay in Mexico. I'm saying so that your intent before you left home was that you were going to achieve the Mexican dream. And they're like, no, uh, but, uh, you know, eventually we expect to be able to make a break for the border. Look, the key, the linchpin to the uh, Mexican program is the National Guard, the troops working with the Mexican Immigration Service, INM, at these roadblocks. These are roving, moving, some of them are moving roadblocks, some of them are uh, stationary, uh, but they're interlocking so that if they miss you at the first one, there's a pretty good chance they'll get you at another one and another one. The odds are very high. So as as long as those, uh, in my opinion, the Mexican National Guard remains deployed this system will work. If those National Guard are ever returned to the barracks, the whole thing falls apart. So, uh, you know, it's it's all up to the Mexican Guard and that that to the Mexican National Guard. But that falls to the whim of AMLO, the president of Mexico, should he ever decide for whatever reason that he's going to return him to the barracks. Uh, that's not good for U.S. border security. Yeah, and I, and I want our listeners just to understand, I mean, as you well know, you deal a lot with the mechanics of the boots on the ground of migration. I deal a lot with the legal side and the courts, and it's just, this is another perfect illustration of why at its core, immigration and illegal immigration is really foreign policy, and why the courts, before they went nuts in recent years, had said for so many years they have no jurisdiction over it because this was all crafted with very sensitive behind the door, um, backdoor negotiations. And clearly some very strong incentives were put in place uh, for AMLO to cooperate. And I think we're seeing that very vividly. Um, what bothers me, Todd, is so I've noticed everything that the migrants do, their reactions are very logical a very logical reaction to our policies commensurate with our degree of loopholes and letting them in they'll come so we shut it down it's known that we return them we have multiple um bilateral agreements with uh mexico with central american uh, countries now to send them back 
Um, in addition, we're, we stopped catch and release. But I still did note, and we talked about this before we got on, that the numbers, they're at breathing room level. It's not at the crisis levels, but they're not 10, 15,000, 40,000. And my question is, what sort of loopholes are some of them still seeing? You did a you published an article a couple of days ago that I felt was just astounding. Um, the headline was. And, and, and you guys could see this. We'll put it in show notes at Center for Immigration Studies. You could see all of Todd's work. U.S. bound migrants gambling on Trump defeat in November. And you talk about interviewing some of these people and they're like, yeah, you know, we'll toughen it out. Um, but, you know, November is only what, you know, nine months away. Trump could lose and then we'll make our our rounds. We'll make our way there. I was shocked at how they know when our elections are. They know the internal politics. And to me, that just really demonstrated how sensitive it's almost like a, like a market reaction to what we do in our politics. Yeah, of course. I mean, they're looking they're very keenly aware. The migrants are many of the migrants are keenly aware of every chink in the armor. They're looking they spend all day studying, listening, social media Mexican media, Spanish language media, which all tells them where the chinks are in the armor and they head for it. It's it's a natural human um, impulse, I think, to do that from their point of view. And so right now, where many of them stand in southern Mexico, I call this our other America's other southern border, because that border very, very much is an American interest. Uh, I don't think we should ever lose sight of the fact that that border matters. When we talk about building walls, we should think about maybe building a wall on their border. But <clears throat> wait, 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 Todd, free, freeze for now. I want, I want to come back to the Trump and the politics. But but that that that's a really good point. Geographically, and you guys could see on a map, isn't it true that the Chiapas Mexican border with Guatemala is much smaller and a lot of it is really very harsh terrain? It's 541 miles, and then there's Belize has a bit of border mm. uh, with the Mexican Yucatan. Uh, but that that area over there is extremely uh, difficult. It's uh, you know wilderness, jungle. Uh, but the 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 channel of the Mexican Guatemala border, where the vast majority of the million migrants came through, is a really small section, mm. maybe of about um, 50 miles. Wow. And in particular, the Rio Suchiati, which is a river uh, right there at the uh, uh, northwest corner of Guatemala, southeast corner, uh, southwest corner, uh, Mexico, that the vast majority just pour through. You know, a couple of years ago, there was the uh, infamous uh, aerial view of that bridge that was just packed with the first caravan and they forced their way through uh, violence and uh, intimidation through the Mexican cordon over that bridge. Well, that's the area I'm talking about. Uh, even today, they're just coursing over that area. So if there could be fortifications in that section, it wouldn't, uh, I think it would help. It would help a lot. Nobody's really talking seriously about that. Um, but, but in any case, the, the border, that area of border is flat. There's roads, there's infrastructures, kind of like the Rio Grande Valley of Texas. Great place to smuggle 
lots of hiding places and, uh, you know, nooks and crannies and things like that. Um, so, but getting back to your, your original point is that I was surprised that just in the course of interviewing migrants, uh, my first question is, well, why would you want to stay in Mexico and apply for Mexican asylum and live and work here? You know, did, when you left home, was your, was it the Mexican dream? And they're like, of course not. We're, we, we don't have a Mexican dream. We have an American dream. And uh, they, they volunteered one after another in different places that, that the gambit was, we're, we're going to wait this out here for less than a year. Donald Trump will lose the election. The Democrats will come in and undo all of this. Wait, they, we'll they know Democrats? They know what that is? They know the whole, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, very savvy. Many of them are savvy. Some are not so savvy uh, about those things. But they talk to each other and they're like, yeah, I'll stay here. It's just less than a year. We'll work. We'll gather steam. And then when the Democrats undo everything, we're in. And that, I, that's and really I, sad. I mean, I heard that from one end of the of the country to the other, uh, that same thing. We're coming in. We're going to wait for the election. It's all on the election. Wow. Wow. That that is that is unbelievable, because I think it demonstrates that if you had a united country that believes in sovereignty and security, if you didn't have sanctuary cities, because there's also the the interior part, too, that welcomes them. They know they could come. They can get driver's licenses that we don't actually enforce the laws that you can't work, you can't get benefits. If we did, they couldn't come, they wouldn't come. But, you know, every every um, security measure has a chink in the armor, but it's more of a political chink in the armor that we're not united. So it's either you get a different president or even if you have Trump as president, you have a lot of states and cities where a lot of their relatives have successfully come and they seem to be making it, not getting deported. Um, and that seems to work for them. And Daniel, the other the other thing that I heard was that there is a percentage of migrants who are smuggling successfully around the roadblocks. Uh, those are not a panacea, uh, but I mean they're very effective, and, and especially in the deterrent uh, projection that 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 they have. But there are, yeah, you know, we still get forty thousand coming making it to the border. So there are. Well, so why? That that's my question. Is it are those runners? In other words, are they also when they come to our border trying to avoid agents or are these people surrendering? These are people that are getting to the border, to our border through smuggling organizations. I have a big piece coming about the cat and mouse that's going on right now between the Mexican National Guard and the smugglers. It's coming. Uh, I've interviewed a lot of military and Mexican immigration officials and personnel about how it's working. When they get to our border, their biggest uh, fear and threat is MPP weight in Mexico. Uh, but even MPP doesn't apply to 100 percent of of the people that we're catching. I think we've only uh, kicked back 60 or 65,000 migrants, but that leaves a, b a whole bunch of others that we've actually let through. So there is a chance, maybe a 10%, 20% chance that they'll still get in. They can run, evade border patrol and get past MPP. Or if they get snagged up, uh, there's still a chance that, that we'll let them loose for different reasons. So on that slim hope, I talked to quite a few migrants that are saying, we're going to run the blockade 
and get to the U.S. border and maybe get over and, and hide and run and get in anyway. I had wow. a, a number of uh, migrants tell me that that was their plan. So, so largely, we've solved the mass surrendering phenomenon, which was so unique to last year, to 2019, started in 2018. But now we're back to the old game where, yeah, the numbers aren't quite as great, but this is why you need the standing deterrent, the the military, the wall, interior enforcement, things Remember, like that. Even, even under MPP, if they if they're uh, return, if we push them back into Mexico, the idea is still that they can just wait till November and a Democratic president will almost surely jettison MPP first thing. So are, uh, are you telling me that? They're not a lot of people are saying they're not going to do that because they're scared of the cartel violence and they're not going to want to wait in Mexico. You didn't find that to be a deterrent. Oh, no. I mean, OK. I mean, look, there 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 is violence. There is a victimization that goes on along the border. Uh, some of them, some of it is is uh, for their fraudulent claims. But I've been in Juarez and I've uh, also been in uh, Piedras Negras. And I've interviewed these migrants and you could kind of see in their eyes and in their face that that some of their stories are true. So I'll give them that. Uh, but it's also a disincentive for them to be there. So lots of them have left uh, as a result of that of that threat. They've gone home, uh, which isn't a bad thing. They should have taken that into that risk into consideration yep. when they left. That's when you are making a calculus about a big journey, a big risky journey, that's one of the things that you accept. Uh, you know, if you go, if you fly, if we launch men to the moon, we know that there's a chance the rocket could blow up and everybody sort of accepts that. It's not some terrible, in my opinion, some terrible circumstance that obligates us to let people into the country. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, they never want to, the left never wants to talk about the cartels, but the, the minute that we kind of etch that into the national consciousness is a big event that happens. And they're like, well, we have to let them in. Well, yeah, no one asked you to go there to begin with. You were, you were back in Central America. Did you actually see ICE agents at Mexico's southern border? I never saw any ICE agents. Uh, I know that they there's been credible reporting that they have accompanied uh, some of the Mexican immigration. I know that we we have personnel there that work closely for always. They've worked closely with uh, Mex the Mexicans on this. I think that that uh, maybe they're they're working above and beyond the past. Uh, you know the way that they've worked with them in the past by being on the front line. I think it's a great thing. I, I'm glad they're there. It it provides a certain amount of credibility, uh, uh, accountability. Uh, to what the Mexicans are doing, uh, you know, because we've got eyes on the situation. That's always a good thing. Uh, but remember, the Mexicans are doing what they're doing, not out of friendship, but out, uh, but under duress. Uh, we, we, uh, our president threatened to uh, really destroy their economy with uh, progressive tariffs of up to 25 percent. We're their number one trading partner. It was a credible threat. This president would do that. Uh, so the 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 second that a, a Democrat gets into office, uh, the it's reasonable to expect that AMLO or whoever's uh, running Mexico at that time will finally just breathe a big sigh of relief, put the troops back to the barracks, and uh, you know it'll be on again. This is all very tenuous and fragile. That that's amazing, and it, it just it 
it's so sad because my brain is thinking about all of the other consequences of what you're saying, not just on immigration, but all national security. When, when, when you don't see a country united by common cause, that's what's so sad. George Washington, Washington always talked about that, he talked about it in his uh, uh, farewell address, united by a common cause. We might have a little, you know, shades of differences um, of, regarding domestic policy, tax structure, but you would think sovereignty, national security would be united. You've got to have a country. You can't have this chaos coming in. But sadly, they know we are very divided. You could tell the Iranians also. I think just for their vantage point, they're also waiting out Trump too. Um, and it's it's said that it's trickled down to your run-of-the-mill impoverished migrant. They know that as well. Um, we just evince a very weak image here. Uh, that That is certainly a very um, big story I think you've unearthed there with, with the migrants. I want to travel a little farther south. So you you observe the border with Guatemala and Mexico, but you you went around Guatemala. And what I'm curious what you saw is what did you see in terms of the aftermath of the great wave of last year? So they emptied out here. What does it look like in some of these villages? Did, did you see empty villages? Did you were you in some of the areas from which they migrated? I traveled to the northern highlands of Guatemala, which is scattered uh, with villages of indigenous, mostly indigenous uh, tribal people, the Tetzels and some other uh, groups that inhabit this area. And in the last great migration to hit our border of the last year, the 2018-2019, the majority of Guatemalans that came into the United States to claim political asylum on the basis of persecution, et cetera, came from this area. So uh, I drove, uh, spent a, a couple of days uh, driving and uh, a couple of nights in the uh, in, in, uh, the villages that were empty. They were like ghost towns, like half the population had left uh, for the United States. There were old people and young people, uh, very few men, they'd all come to the United States. But then I saw a very curious thing, uh, which which I hadn't really expected, which is that these villages, which are subsistence villages, they're agrarian, uh, rural places that where people you know live off the land, off of what they grow and ch chicken and livestock and that sort of thing, were these fabulous multi-story houses. Uh, beautiful uh, engraved uh, doors and with glass and gold-rimmed um, uh, window sills and uh, just uh, you know tile, beautiful tile on the inside, and they were interspersed among the mud brick uh, houses there. And uh, when I asked about what that was, it was that you know their their men and women who had come to the United States were sending money back. And the money was to build these houses. And so they were, uh, you know, they were house, uh, I guess, house rich or what did that have? How does that say? You know, house, house wealthy, cash poor that way. And um, I have a, a story that will I haven't produced it yet. Just keep watching uh, CIS.org. Uh, yeah. I'll uh, put this this story together. And uh, one thing that I will mention here, though, is that um I found no evidence of massive violence or political persecution anywhere. I talked to town officials. I talked to the people who live there. 
so when these Guatemalans are coming over the border, they claim asylum. That inherently means that they're having to make a claim of some kind of terrible uh, persecution. Uh, but like as as one mayor of one village told me, he says, people here don't die from gang violence. They die of old age in bed. There is no <laughs> – they don't even have – they don't even have police officers there who oh, are capable of doing political persecution or anything like that. So, <laughs> I mean, this uh, is, this, you're describing the same old joke. They come to work, they send the money back. I mean, it's very logical what's going on here. We understand why they're doing it. It, it sounds very simple, um, which, which you know leads me to believe a lot of your colleagues at CIS for years were pounding away at this. That a big linchpin in this is is um, remittances, and if you oh. were to target that, from based gonna, on what you're telling me, yeah, I'll be showing where the remittances go, and um, and providing a, a a new push factor that I've never seen anybody write about as to why Guatemalans were surging to our border as soon as a chink was discovered, uh, why they were coming. So just stand by for that. I don't want to give away too much about it. At, at Ben's been Todd on Twitter or to follow him on Twitter. We're going to be posting some pictures. You, you can go to Center for Immigration Studies, Todd Benzman. You just click on his name. You could see in chronological order all of his articles. Um, before we let you go, I just want to expand the discussion a little bit more to non-Central Americans. We talked about that really last time a lot, that extracontinental migrants. So I have here numbers that CBP officials sent me Um in just just Chinese, and there's many more. In September, they caught 463. October, 357. About 270 apiece in November and December. You know, those aren't just a few people. There is clearly a smuggling route. Obviously, we have that really from 40 other countries. Did you come across non-Central Americans on your trip? Yeah, of course. Uh, so the. In Tapachula, the city of Tapachula, which is the kind of staging area, that's where most of the migrants that come across that section of border are trapped. They call that the concentration camp. You can walk around the city square park at, at night. Any kind of nationality that you want to find pretty much are there. And uh, there are Cameroonians, there were Congolese, there were, uh, I met a Pakistani. Uh, and interviewed the Pakistani, lots of Bangladeshis, uh, people from special interest countries where there's terrorism concerns. I also interviewed um, restaurant owners and hotel hoteliers uh, who told me that there were many Somalis in town right then and Iranians. Uh, I didn't meet those Somalis, but there are lots of what they call extracontinental migrants coming through. Uh, these guys are a special case because the Mexicans are not very readily able to deport them. It, it's, it's, a, it's a much more of, yeah. a, of an elaborate bureaucratic issue to deport them, but they are willing to fly them back to Africa and India yeah. and other places, Bangladesh, and they're doing it with American help uh, little by little. But a lot of those extracontinentals have asylum claims that um, can get them into the U.S. If they can get to the border, we look at the the. This is what's interesting because when I talk to my sources at USCIS and I ask them, "Are you applying MPP to extracontinentals?" The answer is sometimes. 
but very often we parole them in on their asylum claims because that's what uh, concerns me. I really think yeah. that's the next shoe. Not, I mean, the shoe already dropped, but I, I mentioned those Chinese numbers because what was remarkable September, September things really were going down at the border. But Chinese, we had again four hundred. Um, what was this? Four hundred sixty-three. I mean, if you would annualize that, um, that would be close to five thousand a year Chinese. We've gotten about one to two thousand a year, typically over the last number of years. The numbers were going up, and then I saw the track Syracuse University data on asylum approvals. Chinese had the highest rate of approval, about 70%. Um, but in general, the extracontinentals have more. Now, we understand because, you know, the whole Central American thing is just a prima facie fraud, whereas there, yeah, I mean, there are there is legitimate persecution going on in the world, but there's also legitimate concerns that, well, are you a Chinese counterintelligence op- operative using this? I mean, how do we know? We're from the Middle East. But, well, see, I yeah. can't. I, I can't. I'm having trouble getting a, a clear answer from the Americans as to how they're applying the third country uh, requirement. I don't think they are very often. On That's, these people, because yeah. because the third country, I mean, the extracontinentals, keep in mind, are passing through not one or two transit countries that potentially are safer than their original country, but 10, uh, <laughs> and 15 Brazil. countries. Like, yeah, Brazil, Ecuador, uh, you know, Colombia, they could. But I can't find anybody to tell me that who seems to know that they're applying third country asylum on extracontinentals you know, in Mexico. But I will say this, that uh, hold your thought there real quickly, uh, th- that that the uh, I want to say just five months ago, I was on the New Mexico border and met some Brazilians who had come across and they said that the Mexican uh, National Guard that had just recently been deployed we're letting all non-Spanish speakers right through. That's not happening anymore. The extracontinentals, as far as I could tell, are being now uh, the Mexican program is being applied to them to stay in South Mexico and apply for Mexican asylum. That is new. Uh, it's, it's fairly new. So, and they're rioting. The Africans have. Um, you know, conducted a number of significant disturbances when the Mexicans started applying their program to them. Uh, and so that's I think that's a positive thing uh, that the Mexicans are keeping them there. So uh, but the ones that are getting the Chinese people are still that have money can afford to pay these smugglers yeah. to still get to the U.S. border. And that's what you're seeing. Chinese have a Chinese. tremendous amount of money. The ones that are coming, yes. even though they ditch their documents very suspicious circumstances. And that's really what concerns me. We talk about chinks in the armor. We talk about incentives and disincentives. So you talked about how the Mexicans are stepping it up. But on our side, my understanding is many of them, you know, we just we just turn them straight over to USCIS. If it's the Middle East, then yes, the FBI will get involved. But usually they're not held Chinese, you know, China's not even designated as an SIA country, even though in my view, you know, the counterintelligence concerns, the espionage is, you know, yeah. kind of Islamic terror, but it's still special interest. And, in, and in that concern, I, yeah. my understanding because, is the FBI is not involved because the, no, no, uh, counterintelligence, uh, uh, entities are somewhat involved and they pay attention 
But the the issue with uh, extracontinentals is that we're, we don't seem to be applying the third country rule that, that you apply in, a, in, a, in the first country you come to, to these people. And I'm not understanding why that's not happening. We, my USCIS officers that are in, that are doing the asylum interviews just say we wave them right in uh, because their asylum claims are very different in terms of gravity and credibility than any Guatemalan who's sure, coming. Sure, but, right. but, but at the end of the day, there still is the concern that, wait a minute, because we have our own hemisphere, why do we have to deal with the Eastern hemisphere? Let Europe deal with that. There's like you mentioned, there's 10 countries in between. Number two is, you know, we we we've done a lot of shows on this just with refugees. But I think, you know, it's the same principle for asylees that it's a little bit more complicated than being persecuted. Some of them are being persecuted, but Sunni Shia civil wars. Well, yeah, you might be persecuted, but it's it's a mixed bag and, and it could still be a security concern to us. Um, so well, keep in mind yeah. that, you know, your typical Cameroonian and I've interviewed uh, quite a few Cameroonians. There's lots of them coming in. Congolese are coming from homelands that are just riven by the most horrendous tribal atrocities and militia atrocities. And it's very easy for any of them to say, I was a victim of that. And just as easy to hide the, the, the prospect that they were the victimizers, that they are war criminals coming in here. And yep. it's very difficult to, for us to vet them. So we, it's, it's not better Jews to, fleeing the Nazis. It's not with the Soviet Union fleeing communism, right. the early Cubans. I mean, it, it's, it's very tough. And this is the same concern I have with refugees that we elect to bring in, certainly asylees where we don't even, you know, at least refugees, we're officially choosing them. Here, they just show up. And, and my concern is- We don't know is, who they are. And, and here, here's another question I have. You, you were involved in intelligence. I don't know how many State Department and USCIS caseworkers we have, but when you have this volume, let's just talk about China. And I know I'm expanding a little bit beyond the border, but not just the- Three to five thousand that we catch at the border. Often they run and then we catch them. They claim asylum. We give about eighty thousand green cards a year to Chinese nationals. We bring in about three hundred sixty-five thousand foreign students over a four-year window from China. Um, but but significant numbers from Middle Eastern countries as well. So what I have border agents tell me all the time is they're very proficient in Spanish. The border agents know Spanish. When you know language, you can look in someone's eyes. And you could you could read them. And they talk about all the time how they would break these bogus UACs who are 24 years old and they're saying they're 17 because you could communicate with them. But when you're talking about Mandarin, when you're talking about Farsi, when you're talking about certain dialects of Arabic, do we really have enough caseworkers that are familiar with the language and the culture to peer through this? No. <laughs> Uh, now there, there we do have uh, language banks. There are there are several private entities that that hire translators. They're vetted. They work with our government agencies. Uh, I've done it myself. You pick up a phone. You're in the detention center, and you say, "I need somebody who speaks uh, Somali." Um, you know, from from the Agaden. And within five minutes, they'll have somebody on the phone. Sometimes they don't have anybody, and they say, "Sorry, we can't help you." But I'll, I'll give you this. I'll give you um, an anecdote that an antidote that um, 
a USCIS, a, a fairly ranking USCIS asylum officer manager told me just the other day regarding the Guatemalans, because these are indigenous people. Yes. So what they do is they come in to the border and they don't know Spanish. They they claim not to know Spanish. The truth is, is that Spanish is a second language for uh -huh. many of them. The older ones don't have Spanish, but most of the younger ones have some Spanish. But they found that if they say, I don't speak Spanish, they're waved right in. All of them. They don't have Terps interpreters for them. They're waved right in. So that got back to the Central Highlands that, you know, I declare asylum, but I can't talk to you. We'll wave you in and give you an NTA, uh, a notice to appear. And, uh, you know, we'll deal with you later. The courts will deal with you later. And of course, you know, that never happens. So, um, <laughs> if, if people are coming in and, and they can't speak the language, we can't have uh, we don't have a, an interpreter. I'm told that we wave them in folks. I mean, you're not going to hear this elsewhere. I mean, this is unbelievable firsthand reporting and it really ties back a lot into the political and legal principles <clears throat> that we talk about every day. Again, incentives, disincentives. This is not some sort of natural disaster like a hurricane we don't know how to deal with. It's very simple. If they believe they could come in, they'll come. If they believe they can't, they can't. If Democrats are around, they'll flood. Trump's around, there's a disincentive, but there's a difference between Trump as a baseline and Trump fully maximizing the tools we have and that's why we need to stay focused. We need to stay focused to understand what's working. But rather than just dancing the end zone and saying, whew, I'm glad we don't have Democrats, which, which certainly we see the fear um, from our end and the opportunity from the migrant end if Democrats do take over. But in the meantime, is there more we can get? And I think we've seen that the extracontinentals, um, we need to do more about that. We need to be careful that there's not a new resurgence of Mexicans in particular. Um, because then we don't have the you know excuse of a third party country. Gosh, I mean, every time I get into national security, I could run off into so many other issues. I promise it would only be a half an hour. But any parting thoughts before we uh, we close up shop here? Yeah, there is one. Uh, I think your listeners would be interested or should be interested in paying attention to the new caravans that are uh, coming into Guatemala and probing and testing this Mexican defense that I was just describing to you. About four days ago, I was on the ground with the lead elements of the first caravan of 2020. They'd come to the Guatemalan border. There were hundreds of them there. And the idea behind this is that they, despite the, the knowing what, what the circumstances were, some of them didn't know, uh, but surely the organizers would have known that 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 there was a, uh, an, a stop and deport and apply for asylum program with guard Mexican guard blocking all the roads. That they are probing this, they're pushing, and they're you can look on the news right now and see that same caravan that I was with four days ago today clashing with Mexicans. The outcome of that battle will have tremendous. Yep. implications for our border security. If the Mexicans relent in any way on any of this, if the caravans win, uh, then more, cara back up. Yeah, more caravans are behind them. Are There's already one forming in El Salvador. Uh, we're, we're told they're, they're, they're coming and pushing and the Mexicans have to hold the line. I'm glad that ICE officials are down there to provide accountability. I'm hoping that the Trump administration 
is communicating with the uh, AMLO administration about the importance of holding that line right now, uh, not least for the Mexican economy, if you know what I mean. Exactly. I mean, it, it all gets back to to economics, incentives, disincentives to the migrants, to the politicians. Um, there is a lot to digest there, folks. So send me your comments, questions, concerns, dharowitz at blazemedia.com. If you have a question for Todd you want me to ask, um, we could discuss this on a later show. We're certainly going to have him back. Todd, man, that was a great intel briefing. Keep it up. Um, at Benzman Todd on Twitter. Go to Center for Immigration Studies, Todd Benzman's vertical of columns. Make sure to check out his one and only reporting on what actually matters to our future. Come on, folks, this is much better than impeachment. This really matters to our civilization. Till next time, God bless you all. This has been another episode of the CR Podcast. Podcast.